My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Slow Departure. The Sad Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Separation. The Deception. The Suspicion. Resistance. The Extreme Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Beginning. Should we get started? Yeah, let's talk about this book. Book 47. Undoubtedly the best book we've read since the last book we read. The Resistance. That is true, Jenny. It was But only terrible. on a technicality. Hey, you guys. Gray, what, what would you like to say? I would like to say that you lied to me again. You <gasps> what promised do we do? that there would not be any more books that would fall into my bottom quartile. Did you promise that, Ted? That seems like a big mistake. That yes. was a mistake if I did that. It was a mistake. It was wrong. I will argue that this is better than 37, but we'll get into it. It's better than 37, but that's just because 37, I still don't actually believe that it is as bad as it was because it's just so unbelievable. So I just like to correct and say there was one more book that may fall into that bottom quartile. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, I feel like you've told me this, Ted. Like, I knew to expect this and another book to be really bad. And I'm, I'm sorry that message didn't get through to you. Gray. No, that's fine. Like I said at the end of the last episode, I had hopes that the 50% of this book that did not take place in the Civil War would be acceptable. But However, it, it was also awful. <laughs> nope. It was all bad. It was all bad. It was bad. terrible. Yeah. It was just, it was absolutely awful nonsense. And I, it is definitely in my bottom 10. It managed, I think it's my second to last. I think it's better only than 37. It managed to be bad in multiple significant ways. Like, not only was it racist, it also made no sense. Yeah. Like, it was just And dreadful. it's like, and the thing is, this is the danger with their, like, long, drawn-out countdown towards the end of the series. Because, like, they still want to do this weird formal experiment where they try and have half the book take place in the Civil War. And I'm just like, how do we not know what ended up happening at the end of book 46? Like, they're ending the series. This is now, like, officially a wasted opportunity in the way that, like, the It's All a Dream oh, right. book yeah. is not. And so it's all the more frustrating. Yep. What a great point. Yeah, like, they're trying to move things along, but they're getting really sidetracked okay. by... Yeah, I have a lot of rants stored up, and I think we should just get to them. So, great. Do you want to yeah. do you want to tell us and the listeners what happened, if anything, in this book? <laughs> oh, stuff happened. Uh, stuff happened. I'm not really sure that I'm confident uh, that this summary is going to do justice to how bad this book is, because weirdly, only like three things happen. <laughs> but they're all bad. Okay. So It's all right. We have like another hour plus to talk about, like to really convey how bad it is. I'm delighted to hear that. Okay. So The Resistance, um, it it's a Jake book and it begins with Jake. Um, he's coming home from, from an Animorphs meeting. His mother tells him to clean out the basement. And as he cleans out the basement, he finds an old trunk that has in it, somehow miraculously intact, a uniform and some military paraphernalia and a journal from his great-great-granduncle or something, like his grandfather's uncle or his grandfather's great-uncle. 
Importantly, yes. not a direct ancestor. Very importantly, <laughs> as it turns out. And uh, this this includes a journal. Uh, Jake kind of opens it, says who cares, and wanders off. I think does he, he does not read the journal. Read he just journal opens Craig? it, says who cares, no, and wanders off. he does not. So... All right. He is woken up in the middle of the night by Cassie, who uh, conveys to him through a stupid code that uh, the free Hork-Bajir are in trouble. The Animorphs meet up at the Hork-Bajir <laughs> Valley, where you will remember that Marco's parents now live. A surprisingly minor point, but just as a note. Um, they go to the valley, uh, and Toby, the Hork-Bajir seer, tells them that um, they did some sort of raid on the on the Yerks. They did great, good job then, except one of the free hork was captured, uh, and he will therefore be infested and be able to lead the Yerks to the valley of the free hork Very bad. And so Jake very sensibly says, okay, well, if they know you guys are all here in this valley, then, then you should leave the valley. That seems like a good way to prevent a, a slaughter. Obviously, the Yerks are better armed, and there are a lot more of them. And Toby says, no, we're going to stay. We're going to fight for our valley. Um, so let us uh, figure out how to do that. In the meantime, these chapters are interspersed with chapters uh, that are the journal from that great, great, who cares ancestor of Jake's, Isaiah Fitzhenry, who is a soldier in the Civil War, who's attempting to defend um, a, a, a town in which major supply lines for the Union Army pass through. It is being attacked by Nathan Bedford Forrest, a Confederate general. Um, the, Isaiah Fitzhenry is trying to defend this town. Many of his troops have been killed or are sick of fever or of their injuries, and so he does not have very many people who can fight. A group of um, free slaves comes down out of the hills, volunteers to fight, and therein the rest of his like emotional arc is whether or not these men should fight with the Union soldiers against the rebels. He eventually lets them fight, conscripts them into the army, and then he dies in a battle against General Forrest, the end of Isaiah Fitzhenry. In the meantime, Jake and his friends are trying to defend this, the Free hork Valley. They... <laughs> morph into beavers in order to build a dam to keep back enough water to flood the entire valley as their last stand. They also meet a group of, of Star <laughs> Trek fans who are camping near the valley. These Star Trek fans, uh, he, Jake explains to them that there are aliens who are about to in invade the valley and they need to leave. The Trekkies are very excited about this and volunteer to help. Jake decides to conscript them to his army and they go and fight against the Yerks. It is a brutal battle. Um, one of the uh, Trekkies is, at least one of the Trekkies is killed, as are many Hork-Pajir and many controllers. Um, and at the end of the uh, battle, Visser 3 shows up in one of his scarier morphs. He burns a lot of the forest. Axe releases the beaver dam, which releases enough water to flood a valley. We'll talk about it. They then have captured the infested free hork so that hork is no longer um, a, a danger to them. And at the end, they decide, the free hork decide <laughs> they will leave the valley temporarily and come back when the war against the Yerks is over which you may remember was Jake's plan at the beginning. That's the end uh, of both of those different strains of this book. It was all very stupid. Yeah, this was, this was dreadful. Um, there, 
there were a couple major points, like major ways in which it was dreadful. What do we want to start with? The racism, the logistical ridiculousness? I don't know. I would like to, first, before we get into any of the details, give my, like, this is the end of the series and it is such a wasted opportunity rant, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, Mm -hmm. I will say, the first chapter is great. It establishes this theme that (laughs) the book does not deliver on of Jake and how he's dealing with the insubordination of the Animorphs from the past two books where... Marco betrays them to his dad and Axe betrays them by, you know, going off with Mr. Two alone. And Jake is like, it's so tough to be a leader and I don't, I don't get any respect anymore. And I'm so exhausted like I was in Mega Morse 4 and in 41. Um, and it completely doesn't do anything with that theme except to have Jake very pettily mm-hmm. also betray the animals. Make animorphs, a terrible choice. Where there are we'll no, and about. there are basically no consequences. So we can like get into that. But like, there are all these allusions to like, oh, the animorphs have been having these arguments about what to do and our tempers are high and we're all exhausted. And like, this stuff happened on an aircraft carrier and, you know, Axe isn't looking Jake in the eye anymore. And like, all of this stuff that you could... I, I want to read the falling action from book 45 and 46 mm, mm-hmm. so much more than I want to read about anything in this book. And like, especially 46 where we never got to see anyone's Yeah. Reactions. And like, this is Jake has so much good material to work with because of the past two books and none of it gets explored here. And we're going to have to wait six more books to get more from Jake's point of view. And why, why did they do this? Like, it even, it, it just, it's so, it's such a waste of time. Yeah, this isn't even like the books in the 30s where they're like, uh, I don't know, we don't really have anything to do with Jake. Um, uh, we'll go on to an underwater Nartek world. Like, this is, there is material. You're so right, Ted. And they just don't do anything with it. Like, maybe it's like they had written the outline before they realized how interesting that material would be. Maybe they just, I don't know. It's part of their being a bad manager of ghostwriters. I don't know. It's a real waste. And it's just like this stuff... There is continuity, right? Like, Ava and Marco's dad are living with the Free Horkwajir. They're thriving. We don't get anything interesting about that. We have this thing about, like, well, people are starting to find out, and should we, like, should we go big or not and tell the whole world? But they don't really talk about that. And, like, the thing with the campers is, like, completely horrible and pointless. And, like, not... The book wants it to be, like... You know, oh, well, they told military people, and now they're telling civilians. And next book, maybe they'll tell someone else. Like, <laughs> it is sort of this, like, we're building, we're escalating towards the, you know, end of the war. Like, the the leveled up Horkbajir with the blue bands come back. Like, it has, it has, like, it's almost like there was, like, a checklist of, like, okay, well, let's make it seem, you know, the callback to Visser Wands more from the first book. Mm-hmm. All that stuff kind of feels like, oh, we're wrapping this story up. But it's, like in a really shallow way that doesn't go anywhere and doesn't feel substantial in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Trekkie thing was ridiculous. Yep. Like, they, okay, so, Gray, you said in your summary, like, they, so there are these campers near all, where all the action's going to go down, and they're like, we have to scare off the campers. And I was like, great, we've seen this before. We saw this in book 30. You know, someone morphed something scary, scared off the campers, they left. That is not what happened here. What happened is that Jake and Tobias walked into the campground and was like, guys, there's going to be a storm. You have to leave. And the campers were like, uh, no, there's not. We have like a portable TV or whatever. We have access to the weather. There's not going to be a storm. And then Jake and Tobias feel really stupid. And then Jake's like, well, I had to do it. There was no other way. 
It's like, all right, Tobias, let's morph in front of them. And then they start morphing in front of these people. And there's this like, you know, they, they, they're careful to tell you these people can't be controllers because they've clearly been out here for more than three days. But it is a completely stupid risk because any of them could become a controller in the future. Like the Animorphs have not yet dropped their veil of secrecy. Like they, most of them, or half of them anyway, are still going to school and living with their families who don't know what they're doing. You can't just tell random people and like you're not at that phase of the fight jake like you you haven't made the decisions necessary to scaffold this decision and it's not required like you could have just been like oh sorry yeah we were stupid left morph something scary and run back to the campsite i was so angry when he started telling them it was not driven by logistical necessity it was a completely stupid risk they clearly wanted it to be somehow necessary or like a new phase of the fight but it was entirely unsupported and then the people started reacting like, oh, this is amazing. We've been waiting for you to come. We've been waiting for the aliens. Are you at the Federation? As if Trekkies are like actually deluded people who think that like the Federation is real and will react in this way to meeting real aliens and somehow just like don't understand the line between fiction and reality. I realize I've been ranting for a long time. I have still have more thoughts about this, but if one of you wants to jump no, in. No. I'm loving it. Continue. I'm nodding my head. Like, this is exactly, yeah. <laughs> yes, all this, yes. Keep going. So the, the full-grown adult with two teenage children, Richard Carpenter, I think is his name. R.I.P. Full-grown adult is like, yeah, let's go with you and fight. And his kids are also in. They're like, yes, let's help the good aliens. And Jake's like, okay, you realize this isn't going to be like a video game. Like this is going to be real battles. People are going to die. And they're all like, yes, we understand. We're on board. And you could assume like, okay, maybe the teenager is like, maybe they don't really get it. But again, full grown adult who likes a TV show. Yes. But presumably is connected to reality in a normal way that adult humans are. He's like, yes, let's do it. And then they get to the valley and Jake's giving them instructions. And he's like, yeah, if anyone's killed, we'll have to leave their bodies there until afterwards. And this, let me just repeat, adult says, adult father of teenagers. It's like, wait, when you say killed, you don't really mean killed, right? He's actually, he's like, you mean like stunned, like, you know, with a phaser or something. And Jake's like, no, like I said, I mean, killed because this is a war and people die. And then the, the father's like, oh, no, we're getting out of here. And I was like, what? Who is this character? This is ludicrous. Like, I recognize they're trying to portray complex human reactions. Like, humans are not always rational. But, like, that, that made no sense. And then he what does he do? Ludicrous. Um, then he lets his kids stay and, like, goes and hides behind some rocks. And then he dies. Yep. These campers have not experienced these battles. And I therefore can give them a little bit of leeway in that maybe they truly do not understand what they're getting into. Fine, they hear good aliens versus bad aliens. Obviously I wanna be on the side of the good aliens. Somehow I've had a break with reality that makes me think this is all real. And I'm going to bring my teenage children into this. I'm going to bring my teenage children into this, and, and we're going to fight. But this father of teenagers, this adult human male, as Jenny has pointed out, <laughs> he decides that he, uh, in the, right before the battle starts, that he is going to run away 
leaving his teenage children mm -hmm. at the front lines of this battle, hidden on battle platforms, yes, but in the front lines of these battles. And the children are understandably devastated that their father is dead. But I would just like you to take a moment and imagine what his life would be like had he survived and one of his children been killed instead, which was yep. frankly a much more reasonable outcome as he went again and hid during the battle because that man would have had to live with himself for the rest of his life, having run and hid, which is a very reasonable reaction. I'm not judging him for that. What I am judging him for is leaving his teenage children to do that. Like all of their motivations were very bad. It just didn't feel reasonable. Like it didn't feel plausible. And when a book breaks with like plausible human reactions and motivations, it just, it becomes impossible to read and like really get into. Yep. It felt like it was trying for something. It thought it was being funny with some of it. It wasn't really being funny. Maybe it was trying to take like a lighthearted tone to like gloss over some of the implausibilities here, but it was working so hard to get these like humans into the fight as like civilians who are volunteers and it didn't have the setup for it and so it just really didn't work at all it was also working so hard in part because it was trying to create a parallel to the stupid historical situation that everything had to parallel in this book yeah before we get into that i would just like to address what jake's decision to invite the campers in says about him which i think as terrible as this book is like, on the one hand, Jenny, you're right. It does kind of make me want to just take a step back and write this all off. Mm -hmm. But if we take it as read that this is what happens, Jake is like a true monster in this book. Because <laughs> what he does is he he says to the other Animorphs, look, so I told these campers um, about the war, and I told them that they were all going to die. And then they insisted on coming. So I am now taking responsibility for them. Um, and when some of them die, as they inevitably do, Jake gets to he's he's basically like I told you so right like this is this is what you get you naive foolish humans for does he say that to them no but that's that's his attitude he's like well they won't believe me so all I can do is show them the horrors of war and let some of them die and it will be my responsibility but if he were an actual leader what he would say Harsh. is find a way to get these people out of a situation that they are not equipped to be in yeah. right like there is there is no circumstance where anyone should be allowing civilians to take up arms against the Yerks without the ability to morph or the like inherent resilience of Hork-Bajir bodies. Mm -hmm. it's, it's pure and utter irresponsibility to let civilian humans fight. And what did it mean when he was saying, I'm taking responsibility for this? Those are just words. Like, what does that? Yeah. What's he going to do? Is he going to? Is he going to adopt these kids? Are they? Is he going to bring them back to <laughs> his family? They're older than he is. No, but I mean, but yeah. I, I'm serious. Like, he's yeah. taking. He has now, quote unquote, taken responsibility for Richard Carpenter's death. Yep. But he hasn't really, right? Does like, what's he? He's not going to blame the other animorphs, like right? And obviously not, right? It, it's all. It, it's all on his head, and it's like it's such a. To me, it's the like this really. Um, it's almost like Jake is saying, well. They're all going to get infested and killed by Yerks anyway. So what does it matter if they die now or not? Ooh. Right? Like, he doesn't quite get to that level. But, no, like, that's the no. only way that I can imagine him coming to such a foolish decision. As, like, okay, guys, you know, 
if you come and fight the aliens, they're going to kill you. And mm-hmm. they're like, oh, no, we, we totally want to do it because we believe in the cause. And he's like, okay. And then he's looking at all their dead bodies later being like, wow, I guess you should have listened to old Jakey right here. Oh, you know, yeah. like, let me get out my leadership issues in the situation by letting innocent people die. Like, it's terrible. It's really bad. Speaking of terrible decisions. So, Gray, you touched on in your summary, you did a wonderful job of expressing how terrible the Horkbajir's decision was. And I think, like, Jake really stands up to them on this. Because, okay, so the Yurks are going to know how to find their valley. They're definitely going to show up, try to kill and or, like, capture and reinfest all these Horkbajir. And Jake points out, very rightly, like, you guys should leave. Like, this is the, you're going to all die or be recaptured. You should leave. And Toby's like, no, we will defend our home. And just like really doubles down on that. And all of the Horkbajir agree with her. I mean, she's their seer. She is much more intelligent than them. She is making a terrible choice. I feel like the book is trying to be like, no, but they must be right. She must be right because all the Horkbajir are with her. Like, no, she's just, she's wrong. And Jake and the other Animorphs, like they're kind of split on this. Uh, Jake thinks like, this is a terrible idea. What no one brings up is if any of these Horkbajir get reinfested, they know that the Animorphs are human. This is like the secret that is protecting them. They cannot let this get out. They seem to have forgotten about that in this book. I'm surprised that the Horkbajir who was captured, like the free Horkbajir that the Yurks captured and infested to find out where the valley is, didn't seem to know about the Animorphs, I guess. They're not worried about that. But like the Yurks finding this valley is such a security risk for the Animorphs. It could destroy them. And Jake's just like, oh, well, I guess all the Horkbajir are doing this. We'll just have to help them. No, you should have found a way to get them out of that valley. You should not have supported that decision. And then at the end, like, what did Toby think was going to happen? They would rebuff the Yerks so effectively that they'd be like, oh, all right, you can just stay. Like, no, that's never going to be the answer. Like, what is the point? Like, there's this sort of weird attitude, which we'll talk to talk about again when we talk about the Civil War thing. Where, like, fighting to defend your home is, like, a virtue in itself. Like, warfare as, like, a thing of principle. As opposed to, like, we are trying to accomplish a thing. Fighting is the only way to accomplish it. Okay, we'll have to do it. It's more like, and they say something about this at the end. Toby's like, yeah, okay, we do have to leave, but it's okay. We just wanted a chance to fight for our home. Like, oh, yeah, we'll stay away until the war is over. We know we have to. We had our chance to fight for freedom. That's all we really wanted. Like, war is something that's good for morale or, like, a necessary part of human existence as opposed to, like, an occasional necessary evil. It was a very weird attitude about war from these books that tend to be very realistic about it. Yeah, and it also... Toby is the smartest member of the Resistance, encompassing the Animorphs, Offrey, Horkbajir, the Chi... Like, canonically, we have seen Toby be really, really good at making tough calls. And the interesting unresolved tension between Toby and Jake was what's good for the Animorphs is not always what's good for the Free Work Bajir, yeah. right? That's in, not what this book was about. That's not what this book is about at all. So it's such a weird, it's such a weird missed opportunity, again, to have a book where it's like Jake and Toby disagree, but it's about something so irrational and ephemeral right Mm -hmm. like like you're saying it's like it's like some uh, yeah something about fighting for our homeland is noble 
Yes, the nobility it's almost, of war. It's almost yeah. like it should go without saying because they never actually explore what it's supposed to mean. But uh, yeah, it doesn't. It seems very hard. Again, it's hard for me to take Toby seriously because so little work is done to explain or question or justify these things that people just seem to take as read. Like, oh, well, the hork want to die in this valley they call home. So, of course, that's a valid opinion that we have to understand. And, like, and maybe there's something... The, the, thing, the thing that makes me pause is, like, what I want there to be a theme of is, like, the Animorphs are being paternalistic towards the hork and the hork are like, no, I, we don't share this attitude. That would have been great. Right? But I don't. I really don't think there's anything here that I'm missing. I think that this is just a question of the hork letting themselves die for no reason. Yeah, I feel like there could have been something like, I don't know, this would make more sense if the hork were historically a more warlike people. But if there were some element of like, no, it would crush our spirits to like not fight for our homeland. We know we're going to lose. Like, I don't know, something that's rooted in like actual, like hork tradition or... Yeah, or like, I don't know. If they had like, I, and this is this is maybe gonna would take it into a whole different level of problematic territory. But it was like if they had somehow like consecrated this valley or like oh, established yeah. it, right? Because because then at least you can you can get into this more kind of like the sort of post colonial mindset instead of the like civil war allegory mindset. Or there could of like, be like a cool like biological thing, like no, the Horkajir who are born in this valley feel the need to come back here to reproduce, like sea turtles. I don't know. Like there could have been something because we have aliens. Yeah. There could be some actual justification for this, but they didn't do any work there. They're just like, no, we must fight for our homeland, and it didn't make any sense. It did not. It didn't make any sense, and the idea of. The nobility of war, which Ted, I think is a really good point. Like that's a, that is kind of what a lot of Toby's decisions are leaning towards makes the civil war analogy all the worse. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm so excited to hear. I also have thoughts on this, but I know you've done research and I want to hear what you have to say about this. Let's get into it. It's civil war rants time. Okay. (laughs) Great stretching. Stretch. Let me crack some knuckles. Let me just get ready for this. I'd like to start by talking about Nathan Bedford Forrest. He is the general against whom Jake's Who the Hell Cares ancestor is fighting. Um, Nathan Bedford Forrest was major general in the Confederate troops. He was also, I just think this is a little bit of an interesting historical tidbit, uh, the first Grand Wizard of the KKK after they were founded. (laughs) And just for another America is racist and up still. Uh, the National Park uh, in Tennessee, which is, I believe, oh, no. generally where this battle takes place, is now called Nathan Bedford Forest State Park. So we're doing great, everybody. Um, he <sighs> was um, obviously famously racist Confederate general. What do you expect? Um, but there's something that I really stood out to me in this book that made me want to start to do research because Isaiah Fitzhenry not a real person, fine. (laughs) But at one point uh, in this book, in chapter 12, uh, this person in his journal is arguing with the leader of the free black men who are volunteering to um, become soldiers under his his command. And the argument that Fitzhenry makes is, haven't you heard what these same troopers did at Fort Pillow? Don't you know the name of Nathan Bedford Forrest? So, oh, that sounds like a real thing. Let's go look that up. 
allow me to share what I've learned from a morning of research. Please keep in mind, most of this was done on Wikipedia, so it is exactly that <laughs> accurate, but research nonetheless. Fort Pillow was a um, Union fort on the Mississippi River in Tennessee. It was a battle that happened in, on April 12th, 1864, and it ended with a massacre of African-American troops uh, and their white officers. The number of troops serving at this fort, there were about 600 men in the garrison, evenly divided between black and white troops. Um, this will, by the way, lead me to be talking about the, um, the, the black soldiers who served during the Civil War, but I'm going to start mm -hmm. with the Fort Pillow Massacre. So Forrest and his friends uh, show up and they take the fort. The fort surrenders and they massacre everyone in it, right? So lots and lots and lots of people died. Um, the women and children who lived in the fort were evacuated earlier, as were, I think, the injured people. So it seems like they it was mostly soldiers who were in the fort at the time. Um, but it was a massacre, right? So the problem that I... <laughs> The problem that I have with the way that that's treated in this book is that this is obviously a this is a, a horror of war, the likes of which the Animorphs have not encountered before. They have seen battle, they have seen individuals die, but it has been on the order of dozens, not on the order of hundreds. And using that as a tactic to show how bad they expect this battle against the Yerkes to be is missing a lot of the nuance of that battle. Because, my opinion, <laughs> at the beginning of this book, I thought the parallel was going to be these black troops want to fight. Oh no, are they going to say that that's like the free Hork-Bajir coming out of the hills to help them fight. That's what I thought this was going to be in the first like couple of chapters. And I texted Jenny and Ted and I was like, oh no. And then they, Toby shows up and I was like, oh no. And then it got worse. <laughs> it got, it got so much worse because that's not the comparison that the Animorphs are making. They're making a comparison, I think, between these black um, freed slaves and the Trekkies in the woods who are also brought into a conflict in theory, not aware of what they're getting into, I guess. There's the problem that I have with this. Because these soldiers, these, these black men, would have been incredibly aware of what they're getting into. There was a massacre weeks before this that demonstrates the absolute horrors that happened during the Civil War and the number of people who were killed in cold blood. And more specifically, I would like to talk very briefly about the United States Colored Troops. That is the name of the, that's the name that they have, right? So just so we know for historical yeah. reasons, I am calling them the United States Colored Troops because that's what they were called. They were about one-tenth of the manpower of the Union Army. 20% wow. of them died. They died at a rate a third as much again as the white troops. They were in the thick of the battle and they were slaughtered. And a lot of that has to do with like who the Confederate soldiers were aiming at if they had a choice. And also because they often volunteered for many, for more dangerous missions, they were part of the Union Army in numbers that I don't think we truly understand in a lot of the ways that like we as kind of educated white Americans talk about the Civil War. It tends to be we're like, 
brother fought against brother and he was like the north wanted to free the slaves and the south wanted to have slaves and then people start talking about economy and then i start freaking the fuck out so we're just take all of that as read we don't talk about the black men who fought in the civil war we also and this is a side note and i'll get to this later don't talk about the women in the civil war we'll get there these men who come down to volunteer for the union army know what they're getting into and to treat them as this book does as children who don't really get it is insulting and then he's and and that they don't and that they're treating this as a joke there is also and i really think we should talk about this more an example of dialect in this book that made me so uncomfortable i have a whole nother rant about it so before you get to i i do i mean I have major problems with the comparisons drawn. I do think that the former slaves, like the freed slaves, are supposed to be the Horkvajir. I think the Trekkies are supposed to be the townspeople who come back at the end. Okay. So I think, but I think there is a comparison with both, and they're deeply problematic for different reasons. Yep. In part because the black men who are coming to help the Union had a good cause yep. and a good reason to be there, and this was a good fight to be a part of, and the Horkvajir... We're fighting for stupid reasons Yep, that never even get explained. And and if that's the example, which I, I mean, I, I can be convinced either way because I like was deeply confused and annoyed by this book. So I probably wasn't reading it that closely, but it's also not very well constructed parallels. So um, I'm actually more annoyed by that because then if that's the analogy, the Hork-Bajir are defending themselves and their homeland and, and then the, you know, the Animorphs are coming in to like defend them and that. I think makes the, just like these black soldiers who like, look, we, the white men are here to defend them because we are so good mm. at the fighting and That's they don't really understand. Yeah. See, I don't like that either. Basically <laughs> what I'm saying is the whole book is just dreadful and this, the group of black soldiers and the lack of understanding of like how important these men were during the civil war was deeply problematic and deeply upsetting to me. So was it, the attitude of the townspeople in this Civil War flashback, where they're like, we can't possibly arm the black men, they'll then turn on us. Was that realistic to the times? Or is it just that there were so many black soldiers that wouldn't even have been a thing? No, like, I did mean, the book kind of make that up? I think part of it, part of the problem is, and like, the the battle that they have in, um, I don't remember the name, the, the it's on a ridge is where they're fighting in the book. Mm -hmm. And I tried to see if there was a good like historical parallel to this sinker to sinker's ridge is what sinker's it's called. Sinker's ridge, something like that. Yeah. Um, there, there isn't a battle of Sinkler's ridge. As far as I can tell, it's sort of made up for this book. There were a number of um, skirmishes fought around this time period. So soon after the Fort Pillow massacre that took place in um, Tennessee and Mississippi um, that were basically um, ensuring the safety of supply lines to the Union Army, which is what this battle in theory is about. There's actually, because it will come as a surprise to absolutely no one, the Civil War is incredibly important to American history and people have done a ridiculous amount of research into it. Um, there are actually some really interesting drawings of where the supply lines were and how these different battles took place in places where the supply lines intersected. So the the battle that I think is probably pretty close to what this battle would have been like is uh, took place in Johnsonville, Tennessee, which was a supply base where there were um, there was a river 
and there was also a rail line and then there were wagon lines. So there were like different intersecting supply lines coming into the same place and the Union soldiers needed to protect that that town because otherwise the supply lines would be interrupted in a number of different ways. And I'm look I was looking at like places where the forests troops came in where there were Union soldiers trying to protect supply lines. And I found like three or four different battles. That was kind of a theme. Um, but this one was one that I think is kind of pretty close. This is the one where the um, state park is now named Nathan Bedford Forest State Park. So yeah, yeah. Um, the, the point being that in Tennessee, probably there would have been this kind of innate racism against arming black troops. But I also think that the realities of the war that they were fighting would have made that attitude f***ing ridiculous, mm -hmm. especially from the other soldiers. Like, from the townspeople, they were not in the thick of things. They did not understand how these battles were going and like, okay, fine. But from the other soldiers, definitely that racism would have been a part of it. Like, the, colored, the U.S. colored troops faced this all the time. That is, I'm not trying to say that, like, the Union soldiers weren't racist. They f***ing were. But there also was a certain understanding of the realities of war that required them to get anyone that could be armed to help. And I just think that if you're, if this is going to be a discussion, it needs to be handled, especially from white authors and especially mm -hmm. for middle grade readers with a lot more nuance, even in the 90s, maybe even especially in the 90s than it was handled with. And it just, there was no part of it that I thought was handled well. Like, it was just awful. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about like taking half of a middle grade book, <laughs> the, the size of an Animorphs book, to try and prevent a three-dimensional story about a hopeless battle in the Civil War and the racial dynamics between soldiers of different races and the townspeople who are predominantly white and like all this stuff. Like, why were they even trying? And like, none of the, none of the characters yeah. are real characters. They're all kind of like signposts for various like caricatures of you have like the racist soldier, the well-meaning, you know, naive white general, the like, you know, uh, smart and capable black guy, the the racist townsman who turns out to not be racist when it comes down to it, right? Like, none of those well, none of those people are easily, you know, eradicated. It's right. just mostly it's a misunderstanding, right? No, yeah, yeah, but so the thing, I mean, and it is it's obviously very very '90s, but I think the thing that one of the things that is now bothering the most, hearing you talk about it, Gray, is the like the real lack of agency that it gives the black men who want to enlist. Cause it's like, you're right. It is presented as like, well, the white men have the training and they have to choose whether or not to like train up these black guys to help them, even if it's a bad idea. And Isaiah keeps being like, you've proven yourself. Now you have to survive. And it's like, it's really, um, because this is just a, such a narrow window into history it comes off as like really not giving black men the agency they had in like being part of the Union Army in fleeing their captivity in the South in like pushing the political issue to the brink in the way that actually happened in history. And like another thing that is so insulting about this book is like you finally get Jake at the end saying like, I saw hork fighting hork mm -hmm. in some kind in some kind of civil war. And 
the American Civil War has a lot to do with racism and a particular kind of history of the United States of America and not at all to do with lessons about humanity at large or hork It's like the idea of hork fighting hork as like some kind of symbol that can translate onto the American Civil War is so, it's such a fundamentally flawed and stupid idea that like, I have no idea how, it, it just, it doesn't make any sense at all, right? Like the idea that the, the hork on the other side, it's its not like the hork, some hork are trying to uh, enslave other hork right? Like, yurks don't make sense as an analogy for the Civil War nope. at all, right? Yeah, and human wars have humans fighting humans all the time. That is not a hork thing. hork have never fought other hork It is yurks controlling hork who do that. Yep. And it's tragic that the free hork have to attack hork bodies to kill the Yerks, but it's a completely different situation. And like the idea of the sort of the series, I think overall comes down thematically on the idea that war is hell, right? Mm -hmm. Megamorphs three is basically all about how the more you try and understand war, the less meaningful it is. But if you want to talk about a war where there was, there is a lot of meaning to be read into it. The American civil war is like, it's, it really is fighting over the idea of, the racist system of slavery and whether that can be like the bedrock of the country. Right. And so to, to take a step back and be like, well, this is a war where like both sides, you know, he talks about like the rebel soldier. Oh, surely he was fighting for a noble cause. And you see like, okay, well the townspeople in Tennessee aren't really that racist. They'll come around and, Oh, it, it ends in this horrible thing where everybody dies. And it's like, so sad, too bad. It's like, if you really want to have the pathos of like, this is a war about something, the American civil war is like an existential fight for whether America will be the country of like universal human rights or whether it will be the country of white supremacy. And it turns out we live in a world where even though the North won the war, the South won the like ideological campaign of whitewashing everything that happened. And the nineties are very much in a moment of like, you know, I don't know, like had, when did Gettysburg come out? That was late nineties. I mean, they made like gods and generals. Like all of those movies are very much like lost cause of the Confederacy yeah, supporting right. things. Like the culture has not accept. I mean, it's, it's a lot to ask from the Animorphs to be forward thinking on this. Right. But like the culture has not at large grappled with mm-hmm. what the civil war actually meant. And so using it this way is, is like you said, insulting. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think you're right that like they just should not have gone here when they wouldn't have been able to go here in enough depth. Like, I think the fact that they thought they could handle this in an effective way in half of a very short middle grade book really just underscores that they didn't understand the issues that they were trying to talk about. Mm-hmm. I also, I want to double down on like, Isaiah is, he's presented as like, he, he has an abolitionist friend who he mostly listens to, and he's supposed to be a protagonist. But like, I don't know, the fantasy that he's somehow super unopinionated about racism is like pretty absurd and also insulting right like you want to give us a complicated portrayal of someone have him be a like he's like a northern guy who thinks slavery should be abolished but still has racist beliefs towards black people and like mm-hmm. present a complicated person instead of someone who's like well i just don't know what the right decision is you know if it was up to me i'd arm them but like what about the consequences right like he has no opinion on it and the book even goes out of its way like this was another very 90s thing to me when he first sees the black men, he was like, 
all of these black men are here to fight and they have a diverse array of facial features and skin colors and stuff. It's like the book goes out of its way to say, this man does not think all black people look the same. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah. it's like, it feels like it's doing that like nineties lip service to like, Oh, you know, Isaiah Fitzhenry can be, he's like an okay, not racist guy. And we'll have these other sort of racist characters, but you know, the true racists are these anonymous guys off in the woods who come and slaughter everyone. And we don't have to confront them. Except I also want to double down on something else that Ted said, which was about the rebel soldier that gets captured. He's injured and captured and brought to the tent and gives Fitzhenry some of the information about the attack that is forthcoming. And this stupid book. This Confederate soldier accidentally gives away the position of the of forest and his troops. And he realizes he's given it away. He freaks out as he should and kind of, you know, tries to kick the general or whatever the hell Fitzhenry is. Lieutenant. Lieutenant. Who cares? And Fitzhenry says, I forgot my anger long enough to empathize. This low ranking rebel was fighting for a cause he thought was right for his home, his people. He was badly mistaken, but that didn't change his valiant spirit. Were our roles reversed, I hope I would rally in kind. It's propaganda. It's disgusting. F you. Get that right out. There has been a string recently, and like by recently, like the last two years, of books about good Nazis, and I can't, it, it, every time I see a blurb about one, it drives me up a wall, and I feel like this is the same bull Like, Fine, good people on both sides, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the f***ing Civil War. This is a Confederate soldier, and yeah, maybe he thought his cause was right, but the cause he thought was right was, you know, keeping people as property. So I'm not super on his side here. Yeah, it's sort of, it's a tough line to, to tread, right? Because, like, there's not a lot to be gained from, like, dehumanizing and like trying not to understand the other side but there, it's also so easy to be like oh well we it's important to be impartial and recognize that both sides think they're right and somehow that makes them equal even though in fact one side is fighting for something that is morally despicable yeah to that point just contrast the way that we think about the nazis to the way we think about and this is we as like broadly american culture think about the confederate south because you can't deny that the people in the Confederate South were us. So the 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 way the zeitgeist has has dealt with it is whitewashing it. Whereas, mm -hmm. like, because the Nazis were bad Nazis and other, yeah. you do not learn anything about the history of American fascism and like mm -hmm. those movements, which was very real, right? So mm -hmm. it's just it's like it actually, if you think about it, in most wars where history is written by the winners you do get to just kind of other the just enemy and say, we've, yeah. we've moved beyond that now. Whereas with the Civil War, history was written by the losers. Yeah. yeah. And speaking of othering, I feel like there is some extreme othering going on of these Black characters in the Civil War narrative. Like, they show up, there's this one named Jacob, coincidence, who is, like, the head is like, we're here to fight. And, Ted, you pointed out that, like, there's this very very deliberate like they didn't all look the same but they all act the same like they are a like sort of a faceless like single entity of like we are here to fight we are extremely noble and better at things than white people it's this very like i don't know putting on a pedestal and like thereby condemning like there's probably a more efficient phrase for it than that but like it's it's a little bit how you it's a little bit like the strong woman protagonist thing where like 
okay, there've been a lot of bad things said about black people. Therefore, these black people can't be full people with attributes. They have to be like completely noble. And it's a little bit how the Horpagir are treated. I mean, it's, we don't see much of the Horpagir who aren't Toby in this book. So it's not like, maybe because they're trying to avoid the parallel of the black people and the Horpagir who have toddler level intelligence, as they should, they shouldn't have created that parallel in the first place. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's this sort of like condescending praise situation. Like you were talking, Ted, about like the former slaves who want to be soldiers, like not having the agency of the actual black men in the Civil War. And yet these these men don't display any agency. Like they display the agency of being like, we want to fight. We will wait quietly and do what you tell us and like not cause any trouble other than, you know, want, like it's not at all a complex situation like, there might as well just have been one who wanted to fight. Like, that wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't have been as big a deal. But, like, they were not individual characters. And, and they, it's just, yeah. it's weakly plotted because the only reason they get to fight is because an attack happens. Like, they don't, it's not like they have a conversation and decide or there's real tension. It's just mm-hmm. like, they're like, oh, the attack's coming, so give them the guns. Yeah. And the townspeople coming around, like, there's no, there's no struggle for that. It's just like, oh, there's been an attack now. Oh, wait, the war is real. I guess we do need black soldiers. Like, it was just... And that, that's, really the, that's the moment that, like, it's like the racist townsfolk guy is the one who tells our protagonist, Isaiah, that it is okay. He gives him permission to arm Jacob and the other black men. It's, it's mm. really messed up. It reminds me of the thing at the end of book 34 where, like, Axe is fine with Aldrea now because it's the end of the book. Like, <laughs> there's no actual thing that happened to make that happen. It's just like, uh, oh yeah, this is how a plot arc goes, right? Oh yeah, oh, can we also okay now. this 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 other horrible thing where Isaiah and Jacob like die next to each other at the end, and and Isaiah like thinks to himself, "Here we are, the same, dying at the same time, and that makes us the same." Oh my god, it's so stupid. I just, I this is so not important, but I just want to point out. That this man writes his own death into his mm-hmm. journal somehow. Wait, I disagree. <laughs> this rant, out of all the things about this book, I feel most strongly about this. Like the Civil War stuff, it's obviously offensive. <laughs> but why? Why introduce the journal if, if you're going to make him write out, I have been shot and am dead at the very end of the book? It's so stupid. And that's like, yes, because Jake, so as we pointed out, Jake does not read the journal. This isn't a book about Jake reading the journal and seeing parallels. No, 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 he never reads it. But he does turn to the last page and sees the stuff where Isaiah's like, I fear I may not make it. And you're like, what, how, why are you writing? Like, how are you, how are you doing this? This Cause makes yeah, no the sense. The chapters are all kind of like Elmas level view of Isaiah's psyche. Mm-hmm, He's not transcribing mm-hmm. all this dialogue and all this observation, right? It quickly dispenses with the conceit that we're reading Isaiah's journal until the end. And it, like, I don't understand. Why would you make that decision? Is it supposed to be funny? Is it supposed to be funny? He's he's been shot. He's dying. And he's like, I am surrounded by mud and blood. I have been shot. I am dying. This is the end. I just want you to imagine, like, imagine the scene on that battlefield where this guy who is in charge of the troops is like explaining to them, all you need to think about, right, is load, fire, reload. And then somehow he gets shot and he's like... 
I could probably, like, I don't know, try and take down a couple of other soldiers, but instead, I'm going to take my journal out of my pocket and just, I'm just going to take notes on this last minute. Don't worry about, you guys go on with what you're doing. Don't worry about me. I'm just going to be writing here. I, I, I caught his eye. And we were both dying at the same time, and now I'm dead. Okay, bye, world. Like, what are you talking about? So the reason it's there, I assume, is um, to create an attempt at a poignant moment, which doesn't really land because in fact Jake's experience doesn't really parallel Fitzhenry's at all because Jake doesn't die yet. It just occurred to me. What? What if this is an incisive commentary on how the Animorphs are writing <laughs> down all of their adventures in books for us to read about even though Amazing. How can they find the time in their busy schedule of saving the world? Is, is it the, what's it called? A Harris Delint? A Heractalest. Heractalest. Yes. It's, this Wait, is their That would be so much better <laughs> if the, if like the Elemist appeared at the end of this and was like, hey, Isaiah, I'm not going to explain any of this to you, but I'll take your memories down nice. for like safekeeping. Yes. That would be awesome. Yeah. But, he just needs a pensive like Snape. Yeah. Anyway, um, Jenny, I interrupted yeah, no, your No, I was point. just... <laughs> my point was that the book kind of fails to make a point. He's... Because Isaiah's last words are... I fear I am killed. I hope I have done my best. I hope. Those were the last legible words. So he's literally dying on a battlefield and being like, I hope. And um, yeah, Jake says Fitzhenry had tried and lost. How would my last page read? How would my story end? I hope I have done my best. Yeah, I whispered, closing the book. Me too. And it's like, oh, at this point, let's make a connection between these two. You didn't even read Fitzhenry's story. Like, what is this? It also is like, it's such a generic statement on like leadership and like, you know, Jake's in a situation where he's over his head. Like, it makes sense. I guess he's wondering how his last page will read. But like, he he doesn't even know there's been a parallel. Like, what the, it, it's not specific to the events of the book at all. It's, it's just dumb. Great. I've said this before and you've been disappointed. You'll be glad to hear Isaiah Fitzhenry has nothing to do with the future of the Animorph series. Of course he doesn't. He's dead. <laughs> You know, he was dead in this book, too, and it didn't help. I just, I can't stand it. Do we have any other extended Civil War rants? Because I have some rants that are not specifically about the Civil War. What I have one more. Yeah, okay. get, let's get into it. Let's get into it. We'll stack them all up. It is a brief rant, and it is essentially a, the follow-up of the rant that I have already done. They are teaching these free black men to fight and there are 30 of them and they've just been issued rifles for the first time oh yeah this rant yes okay yep uh one of the negroes a young man with a square jaw couldn't contain himself i wish my massa m-a-s-s-a -S -S -A, could see me now no nope no don't write dialect like this it is racist and bad writing don't do it like Really, Massa, I wish my Massa could see me now, and that happens twice. I just don't do it. Don't do it. It's not that hard. Don't do it. Yeah, yeah. That's my rant. Don't do it. Well done. Well said. That's one of those, like, that's just one of those things that if you thought that they were trying to do something and good and failing, this is a moment where you're like, they probably weren't trying. Like, they, it was probably, they felt confident that they could pull this off without thinking about it, and they were wrong. In that same scene, they learn how to fight, and apparently the these guys are real, real good at, like, fighting and, like, shooting things very accurately, whatever, who cares? Mm -hmm. And uh, Fitzhenry says, These men learned faster than any enlisted men I'd seen, perhaps because for Jacob and his men, the stakes were somehow higher. Yeah, you think? 
Do you think that maybe for a bunch of freed slaves living in the hills of Tennessee, the stakes of the Civil War are somewhat higher than for the farm boys from Massachusetts? Yeah, could be. I mean, could be. If you if you had to guess, I'd say maybe they're a little bit higher, somehow higher. Get out of here with that nonsense. Now I'm done. But isn't this a great isn't this a great parallel to the Horkajir who have these high stakes of being able to live in their valley, which they will definitely be able to do as soon as they beat the Yurks? And then the Yurks forget that this entirely happened. <laughs> or the high stakes for the Trekkies, where they could um, participate in this fight and have many of their loved ones die, or choose to not do that and be okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough choice there. Yeah. Yeah. can see why so many of them chose to fight. We haven't even talked about the beavers yet. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. Wait, before we leave the Civil War, I made a list of things that I liked about it. Nice. The, those chapters. So, the weird song. I don't know if we're going to make me sing the song. I don't want to. Please sing, Please no. sing the song. It comes, it comes song, from the book. Ted. It comes from the book Hardtack and Coffee. Which is available in its entirety on Perseus. So, everyone check it yeah, out. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a Civil War diary. Or, like, a, it's a, written by a Civil War soldier who writes about army life. Um, so, this is, like, a pretty direct reference. Pretty sure that the ghostwriter read this and this was like oh here's here's what it's like being in the army right but it's not like a book about the history of the civil war necessarily so anyway i wanted to cite that as like oh that's interesting and probably i don't know it's it seems like a good primary source text or a foundational primary source text at least that they're referencing um there are civil war era cinnamon rolls featured in this story which i appreciate as a shout out to series canon Isaiah thinks to himself that the the weather, I think, is it the weather? The weather is an ominous omen, <laughs> which... No, no, read the whole sentence. No, Greg, can you read it for me? I, I just have an ominous omen in all caps because I wanted to talk about <laughs> it. I initially rolled my eyes, but now I love it. But I'll tell you why. Okay, well, no, you t- tell me why and then I'll read the whole thing. Okay, so because I was like, this is redundant. And I was like, is it redundant? Because... An omen, I think, can be for good or ill, but ominous tends to connote only bad things, right? So it's not quite as redundant as I first thought it was. And then I was wondering if you could use the word ominous for, like, good fortune. You know, like, oh, I, there's a penny on the ground. How ominous, <laughs> right? Like, so also, Ted was like an ominous omen while we were reading this, and I was like, oh my god, does ominous come from the word omen? And it does, and it had never occurred to me. So I'm very grateful to this phrase for having taught me something I should definitely have known already. Here's what is an ominous omen according to this book. Uh huh. And I'm going to read this as written because I have two notes. One is ominous omen, are you kidding me? And the second is editing. (laughs) (laughs) While the coffee boiled, I rummaged in my haversack for sugar. I found none, I had to drink my coffee black. One sentence. (laughs) It felt like an ominous omen. Two other things that I liked. I also had a thing I liked. Yeah. Jacob throws a shovel like a javelin in battle, and that put a really awesome image in my head. That was really cool. And there's this extended passage where Isaiah has these memories of home before his last battle, and he thinks about his mother and his sister, and he's like, it'd be so great to just be home again. And then he thinks, depending on the results of tomorrow's battle, I might be there sooner than I expect. And I'm like, home is death. Thank you. Thank you, Civil War's parallel story. <laughs> I, I approve of this metaphor. 
if nothing else, in the Civil War side of things. So my favorite thing about the Civil War section was the names. So you get, um, first of all, you have the leader of the freed slaves who is named Jacob. And I was like, aren't they drawing a parallel between Jake and Jacob? But then they never seemed to. So that was great. Then there was also Isaiah's best friend named Matt Carson. And I was like, is this almost a Marco anagram? They were childhood friends. Yeah, yeah. But then he was nothing like Marco. So I was like, okay, this is weird that you didn't follow up on this either. And um, and then they had a soldier named Sergeant Spears. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay, they're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. They're just like using random war terms for soldiers' names. And then Private Tweed showed up. And I was delighted. Were there other things that we actually liked? I, that that was it. About it, I have some stuff that I liked from the the normal Animorphs book, but the Civil War stuff, bottom of the barrel. I'm sorry, I thought I was done with all my Civil War era rants. I'm not. I've got one more. Bring it. Yeah. Let yeah. Lay Excellent. Yes, please. I would like to briefly talk about Sally. Mm. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Ah, uh, Sally, the only woman in this town, or yes. anywhere. Apparently, in the Civil War. In that time period, In actually. that time the period. The of the Civil War. Just, there's just the one woman <laughs> anywhere. That's all you need. This book, by the way, does not pass the Bechdel test, in case anyone was wondering about that. Um, the first time we meet Sally, she is serving, as women are, of course, want to do, as a nurse in the... Um, in, in, the in the camp, she is taking... She is the only woman... And she is the only person taking care of these soldiers. <laughs> She's very cheerful about it, by the way. She's um, mm. a woman from town. She answers with more cheerfulness than I expected, given that when she says she talks to him, she's wringing out a blood-stained cloth into a bowl of water and is, again, the only person taking care of this tent full of soldiers. Uh, and then we see her again a few chapters later where she is, um, she's married to one of the leaders of the town. And uh, so the two of them throw a party for the soldiers who are still standing. She greets them, resplendent with golden hair bouncing in ringlets and a red-trimmed dress to match her lips. They have a party. And then the um, you know mayor of the town or whoever he is leads her in and says, "Come sample the foods my Sally has prepared," and it's like milk, cheese, cake, preserves, boiled ham, turkey, pudding, pickles, loaves of fresh baked soft bread. No, no, she didn't. <laughs> That's not what happened. Because one, she did not prepare all of these foods and also take care of a tent full of sick men. That's yeah, not how time no. works. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, but wait, women don't have the same laws of physics the rest of us do, right? I would like to get in on that lack of physics if I could please, because I could use a few days where I'm able to like do a full job and then also bake shit. It's just our nurturing spirits let us overcome. That's really the problem is that I do not have a nurturing spirit. Like, Mm. no, she's not taking care of the soldiers and making all this food. Also, she's like the the wife of the mayor or whatever. She has servants. She has slaves. There are other women (laughs) in the town. Like that is how she got all of this stuff done. There's not one woman. She's she's. It's the Smurfette thing. She's the one woman in the whole town, mm-hmm. and I just, I can't. I, can't, I just. I put, what are you doing? I would like to point out this book does pass the Bechdel test because Cassie talks to Toby about how all the Horkdeer are going to die and they really shouldn't stay and fight the Orcs. Okay, fine. 
Although most of the Yerks are male, so... Except for the ones who are making things, crafts in the background, which the book hastens to point out are the female Hork-Bajir. Oh, why? yes! I was like, why are you Why are you t- introducing this divide why of is like, that a warrior culture among Hork-Bajir, who do not historically have a warrior nope. culture, that you... You can't even tell the women from the like or the male horpager from the female horpager except for like the number of forehead horns. Yep. Like it's like there's no reason the women wouldn't just be preparing to fight in the same way. Except in this f-ing book when the women are the ones doing the crafts and like making the spears for the men to use in the battle apparently. I hate how they introduced Rachel as the warrior and then forgot that they were like trying to do that. I just like, I can't stand it. Yeah. Yeah. There are there are really some some solid rants in this entire book. Should we talk about the beavers? By all means. <laughs> so what is their plan here? Their, their plan is to flood the Yerks out by expanding the beaver dam so that there's enough water that when they destroy the beaver dam, sorry beavers, they will flood the entire valley. Mm-hmm. That's not possible, right? <laughs> it's, just not, it's just not how anything works, right? Well, it's unclear to me where, if they're having enough water to flood the entire valley, which they're, like, making a point of saying is a really narrow valley. I don't know. There seems to be a lot of hard material in it, but whatever. How, where are they backing it up? Like, where is it going? Right, so they've created a giant reservoir over the past few hours? Yes. Five beavers can do that, even though they really only had three. The amount to which this does not make any goddamn sense it's like it's it's shocking how little sense this makes (laughs) even if a beaver dam could be used to block enough water to flood a valley which it can't you couldn't do it in this amount of time like the the water would not have had time to back up enough to flood Mm -hmm, an entire mm -hmm. valley the the streams that beavers send it again wikipedia so (laughs) but like we're talking the average depth of water behind a dam is like between one and two meters. Mm. And the average stream width that they can block is four and a half meters long. So like, that's not enough water to flood Yeah, and if anything. they try to back up more than that, they'll need like an entire, well, they'll need to create like a new water holding space. Like they can't just or, continue to block this one river. Or this isn't a valley that's like a hork canyon (laughs) like a really narrow canyon full of trees full of like maybe one tree at a time in a row (laughs) i mean there is some i mean i will say there are some really huge beaver dams out there in the world but like they Mm -hmm. weren't made my point is they weren't made in an afternoon but what if you have five beavers (laughs) sorry (laughs) so no no but axe is an alien and Axe can just do things with engineering that normal, you know, humans or earth animals can't do, right? So it's just a totally different thing. I mean, I guess. Apparently there is um, one beaver dam that can be seen from space. That's pretty cool. Where is it? Canada. Nice. Of course. Good old Canadian beavers. But again, it took like years to be constructed, not hours. But there probably wasn't an alien involved, which changes everything. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was um, that was bad. Um, it's it's also very much like it, they're they're working really hard and kind of failing to try to scale this to be a problem that the animorphs can solve. And they have this whole thing about how like the Yerks aren't just going to shoot the valley from the sky 
because it's too narrow. Their bug fighters wouldn't be able to get down into it. But then later it turns and, out it's also because it would risk them being openly exposed. Right. But bug fighters can shield, so I don't really see how that's an issue. And also there are too many trees, so that would be hard or something. But then Visor 3, I mean, Visor 1 burns down all the trees. Yeah. Oops. But in book 30, the Yerks thought they'd found the location of the Hercature Valley, and they just shot it from space. So that's definitely what they would have done. Except they can't try the same plan more than once, so... <laughs> yeah, no, it makes zero sense. And I know I've said this before, but I don't know what the heck Toby thought they were going to gain from this. Did she think they were just, like, the Yerks would be like, oh, too hard to assail, I guess they can just stay there. Like, no, you find a different base and you hide there. That's how war works. Yep. But yes, this thing where, like, they've conveniently managed to create a way to flood the valley and wash out the Yerks, and, like, the Yerks can't use their heavy artillery because they don't want to for some reason. Like, it just all felt really forced. And, like, you can kind of see the cracks in, like, this conceit where, like, the Animorphs are able to, like, stop what the Yerks are doing. Like, this situation did not support that. But the fact that the Animorphs had to build this dam did mean that we got some really excellent Marco Axe interactions. Oh, okay, fine. That was the one thing I liked. I it think Marco Axe is now canon. You know, I think it's developed in the last, like, you know, half a dozen books or so. I'm just going to say, this is the first real evidence we've seen. <laughs> well, the end of 44, you know, they were really acting, you know. I think. Can you please I, enumerate it yes, for us? Yes, okay. So Axe is describing this extremely plausible plan to build the Beaver Dam and flood the valley. Three to four thousand cubic meters, Axe said. I believe that is what it will take to inundate the valley. Marco batted his eyelashes. Axe, you just make me all tingly when you talk all smart-like. And then later, he says, Axe says, fluid mechanics was one of my specialties as an arist. Marco sighed. What haven't you done? Which could have been annoyance, but I'm taking to be a dreamy side. Did you catch when Marco refers to Jake as Prince Jake? More <gasps> evidence that he's been spending time with Axe? He he does? I missed that! Where is it? Yeah, I mean, they've that's where Marco hangs out when he needs his HBO fix, and uh, he probably needs that a lot. He probably just finds that he needs it every day. Because, and can we just, this is a minor thing, but you know why Marco needs a place to hang out now? Because he's dead. Mm -hmm. And he died, like, yesterday in these book timelines. Yeah. So it's a little weird to me that when Jake gets home, his mom's reaction is, go clean the basement <gasps> and not, how you doing? You okay? Your best friend just oh, died. Yeah. Wow. Clean the I basement so your friends, think of that. one of which just died <laughs> tragically, can come over. <laughs> yeah, because Marco's She's, like... Marco's she's, his, like, best friend, almost his only She's friend. the waspiest woman alive. She's like, clean the clean the basement so your friends can come over, and here's $20. Yeah. Oh, my God. What friends? Best friends just died. <laughs> can I have a little sympathy about that? No? Okay, that's fine. Oh, Move my gosh, on. I can't believe there's no follow-up on that. That did not even <clears throat> occur to me. Wow. That's so badly done. Also, yeah, so we talked a little bit about the, the Jake-Marco tension that hasn't really gone anywhere yet. Um, but, Ted, I think you referred to it as the petty decision to call to tell the, the campers what was going on. It felt to me more like the stupid decision. But then he, he tells Marco later. I, I wrote in my notes, I was like, Marco's going to be furious about this decision. This is so stupid. And 
Jake tells, he's like, doesn't want to tell them, but he's like, okay, so I told these campers and Marco's like, what, what, who decided that it was time to start telling people? And Jake's like, you did when you told your dad. And Marco points out later, he's like, like the next page or whatever. That was very different. Yes, it was. That was one person whose location you are prepared to monitor, who you are prepared to fake the death of and keep in this Horkbajir Valley or not there anymore, but you know, and like keep off the grid. That is a controllable situation. These are like a dozen random campers that you know nothing about and are not prepared to follow up on. It was also so rude. (laughs) Also, like earlier in the book, when Toby is first like, we're going to stay and fight. Jake is like, you're all going to die. All right. People who were wrong and want to fight, go stand with Toby. And people who are right, come and stand with me. It's like the most like angsty teen, like freak out moment. And oh, it completely man, yes. backfires, right? Like, the, again, I don't understand Toby's rationale for doing this. But the only responsible way to handle it, especially if he thinks he knows what's best for them, is to go to Toby and say, like, look, I know you need to save face with the Herkbajir, but we got to work something out. Like, what yeah. can I give you to make this happen? And instead, he's like, all right, losers go with Toby <laughs> and cool people come with me. It was really a leadership fail. He doesn't yeah. demonstrate a lot of good leadership in general. In and, like, book. when he when he comes to the other Animorphs, like, Rachel's like, okay, so why did you start making, you know, doing this? Like, Rachel's like, Jake, what were you thinking? And he's like, I started listening to you because you said we should start telling people. And she's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then Cassie's like, well, at least they made their own decision. <laughs> like, they're all, like, really tepidly trying to be like, okay, Jake's clearly losing it, but... <laughs> We're gonna yeah. we're gonna go along with supporting him. Marco has this great comment, actually. So um, I was watching Ted make notes on this, and he made a note at the end of the page where where Jake was like, "We're gonna build a beaver dam and flood the valley." And Ted was like, "Jake, Jake is obviously like needs to get some sleep. Right. It's the worst it's like, plan Jake, ever." Jake, what get some sleep? And then the next stop. page, Marco's like, uh, "I think someone needs a nap because you're <laughs> obviously overtired." I was like, "That is probably like he says actually at the beginning of this book." Jake says he's like. You know, being exhausted will make you, you know, kind of snappish or rude or whatever. And like, yeah, that maybe that's the problem. Apparently, Jake, you need some sleep. Get some rest. Take a few days off. Probably can't do that. But, you know, if you could, maybe you'd make better decisions. All right. Um, so I also would like to go back to this thing about what the deal is with the, what the Hork-Bajir are fighting for and, and all the, like, themes surrounding the Hork-Bajir and the free Hork-Bajir and stuff. So there's this whole bit where Axe and Toby kind of go off on how uniquely intolerant humans are, Mm. right? Marco has this whole thing about, like, what you think, like, all these, like, suburbanite people are going to be okay with, like, the Hork-Bajir moving in next door. Here's the parallel with the former slaves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sort of, right? But, like, exploring how Hork-Bajir might integrate into human society would be a great issue. You know what happens in this book? A bunch of campers meet them, and they get along great. (laughs) That's true. You know what doesn't happen in this book? Any human thinks poorly of any (laughs) Hork-Bajir. This is about the Yerks having discovered where they're like, you know, escaped victims are living, coming to kill or enslave them all. It is not about, like, peacefully integrating two different societies. As much as that is an interesting issue that these books have explored in the past, they are choosing not to explore it here. And Marco is even like, 
see how humans dominate animals. Remember <laughs> book 28? It's like, this is such a shallow way to return to these themes. It, like, yeah. it's, it's doing absolutely no work. And There's like some straw man about like, humans won't accept hork despite that not having anything to do with what happens in this book. Yeah, that's true. The Animorphs, They're all of the Animorphs love the hork Yeah. Nobody is at this at this point thinking hork don't deserve to have their own society. Like, it, what are they doing parroting these like things that they've spent multiple books working through? It doesn't make any sense. Well, they need to have thematic depth, and the book doesn't give them any so they're reaching really hard. But no, it's also like they don't get into the thing where, like, Axe says the humans are uniquely intolerant when everything we've seen of Andalites shows that they are extremely intolerant of any species that is not their own, and of their own if they have, like, you know, what was it, like, if you're missing a tail, then, like, you're not worthy of life or something like that. Like, any sort of, like, physical difference is completely vilified. I think it would be an interesting commentary on Axe's personality to have that be just his own blind spot. But I think it's just the books like reaching lazily for like a, oh yeah, remember how humans are intolerant? Look, we were just deep. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's so stupid. Also, this matters a lot less, but Toby listens to trees. What was that? That yeah. was new. What? What what trees don't talk? I hope that she was messing with them (laughs) because otherwise it's like, it's like so, it's so embarrassing. Toby is like one of my absolute favorite characters because she's like a six month old strategic (laughs) mastermind who can run circles around all the other characters in terms of her like pure, brutal strategic ability. And to have her be reduced to this kind of like, I am fighting for my homeland and throwing my people's lives away needlessly and I listened to trees and the trees told me people are coming to help. Like, what is this? Yeah, I mean, if it's actually that the trees talk to them, that's an interesting development. But we've seen Horpajir, <laughs> like... I mean, we've seen, like, in the, on the Horpajir homeworld, we've seen, like, Dak's perspective. They didn't talk to trees. Like, that was never a part of it. Andalites have a thing where sometimes they talk to trees, but like we're not in the Andalite homeworld. We don't have Andalite trees. Nonsense. <laughs> I think I'm 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 almost ranted out. I have some <laughs> positive things to say about the rest of the book. I know we've said this a little bit. I've said this a little bit already. The thing where the Trekkies are super excited to meet the aliens. I was just so annoyed by it. Yep. That's all I have to say. Okay. Oh. <laughs> I have a positive thing. At one point, Marco refers to Visser One as the Earl of Evil. That was And it was my favorite nickname that anyone has ever gotten. Um, Okay, I was... Listen, I have already checked off my ghostwriters forget who's talking, but it was a bit of a stretch. No longer. Nope. No longer at all. (laughs) Now I can confidently check that box off on my bingo. Yeah. Because um, a couple of times, there are moments where... It's just a little unclear to me why they decided that people were going to say that thing. Um, So I'm going to just find my favorite one, which is so silly. It's a Tobias line that Tobias Uh did not say. He didn't. And I know he didn't because I've read 46 of these books plus a few (laughs) extras. And Tobias did not say, Jake... Fearless leader, do you have a plan or are you just going to smile and look stupid in our morphing outfits? 
Tobias said privately. No, he didn't. Tobias didn't say that. Tobias doesn't talk like that. That's nonsense. (laughs) Rachel maybe said that. Marco could have said that. You know who didn't say that? Tobias. Although, while we're talking about morphing outfits, apparently now they can morph jeans and t-shirts. Surprise. Yeah. They've had a lot of practice. Now they can do it. I love that. New information. I actually, that, that is probably objectively the only good thing in this book. The Marco and Axe stuff. That's true. That's yeah. true. That's pretty yeah. good, too. The other place where Tobias says something that Tobias did not say is when Tobias laughs and says, you know, this mission is seriously important. I'm thinking the morph should be a little more, I don't know, glamorous? I mean, going beaver to save an entire colony of aliens is like putting James Bond behind the wheel of a minivan with a bumper sticker that says world's greatest mom. No offense. Do you know whose line that is? That's Marco's line. One, that's Marco's line. Two, you morphed a taxon like yesterday. (laughs) Beaver's not that bad. I'm checking that box. Yeah. Also, Ava is the world's greatest mom and no one should be throwing that around like it's an insult. Great point. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I really loved Jake's extreme drama moment. He's cleaning out the basement. Tom's old schoolwork from before he became a controller. I threw the stack into another box and started to write his name on the lid. Stopped and crossed it out. Printed, trash. I didn't have a brother anymore. It was... (laughs) I am worried about this kid. Yeah. It's pretty darn worrisome. I mean... I, you know, it, there's some. It's based in some real stuff there. Like his brother has been at like an alien. His brother's slave still for, there. Like, years, but also his brother is still exists. <laughs> um. Okay. I have a couple of things that I liked. Uh, Cassie gets a beautiful shining moment when she uh, reaches her hands under the water, finds the entrance to the beaver dam, and then it's like, "Hey, someone kick the beaver dam, and I'll grab a beaver," and she grabs it. It bites her, and then she acquires it. And she's like, you know what? I guess when your mother says not to stick your hand in a beaver dam, you should listen to her. And I'm like, Cassie, I love you so much. I love that her mom had to say that to her in the past. That's amazing. That was very funny. (laughs) I I also liked the when the Hork-Bajir and the campers meet, the the campers extend their hand, and one of the Hork-Bajirs, like, (laughs) covers their hand in, like, a little cage of knives and says... (laughs) Hello. <laughs> that was phenomenal. Just to not cut them. <laughs> yeah. I was very disappointed in the beginning of this book. So Jake's in the basement. He's found this old chest that's going to have like the journal and the uniform in it. And it's like, to Jake from Grandpa G. And he opens the lid and all the power goes out in the house and there's a crash. And I was like, oh. <gasps> He got thrown back through time. Turns out, no, it was just a storm. It, there was nothing that happened at all. Then he never even reads the journal. I was like, what is this? What? I was going to be mad about him being thrown back through time, but now I'm just disappointed. The whole the whole piece was like very ominous. Like it's a huge mm. storm, thunder. There was like an ominous omen, crashing. right? Like Tom yeah. walks in and just stands silently in the door. Like it's all very <laughs> creepy. And then it's just like... And then I put some cardboard over the window that got broken by the storm and like went about my business. What was the point? (laughs) Um, Okay, so speaking of things that people didn't say, I would just like to point out that there was clearly an editorial decision to remove one of Marco's jokes. So when Marco (laughs) first morphs a beaver, it says, Marco morphed. There was a big splash as he dropped into the water, a resounding crack as he slapped his tail. Awesome, he shouted. These front teeth are great. 
Let me add some trees, baby. I'm going to build me a dam. Marco did not say that. Marco made a joke. I would invite the <laughs> both of you to come up with what joke Marco made in this moment. You know, I think it could go without saying, but Gray, please, if you have. <laughs> Marco said, damn, girl. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> I don't think that's what you were thinking, Jenny. That's not what I was thinking. That's fine. We'll let the readers make up their own jokes. Marco did have the one 90s slash oddies moment in this book that I picked up on. Oh, Let's talk about it. Yes. The Lodge, Marco echoed excitedly. A roaring fire, hot chocolate, Britney Spears, brandy maybe, the girl, not the drink. These dudes know how to live. Okay. <laughs> this is like, it's the most middle grade thing ever. They, You make a brandy reference, right? Any child reading this knows that brandy is a girl. But for the adults <laughs> who pick it up, they don't. The, the last thing Scholastic wants is for some parent of an Animorphs reader to come in and be like, is, does this kid know about drinking brandy? No, no, no. And you have to clarify That's that Marco... That's the problematic part of this book. Doesn't want... Right. All the violence, right? All the all the racism, like Marco whatever. Marco wants beautiful girls in the lodge with him, not alcohol, because that would be bad. It's absurd. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I really had anything else okay. about this. I have a good way to wrap it up. Bear with me. So there is so much... That is wrong with this book. Um, but I was thinking about what could possibly justify some of the plot in Animorphs time that is happening. And I, I'm, I want to draw a thread between a couple of things that happen in the book and make a pitch for a kind of like fix it fic that has an actual better theme, right? So Jenny, you brought up this thing where he crosses out Tom's name and writes trash. Yeah. On it, right. Yeah. We've mentioned how exhausted Jake is by the war. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned how he makes these kinds of like petty decisions. He's kind of like, whatever, they're going to die. You know, like, whatever, I'll just do the best I can. But like, there's no good way out. At, at one point earlier, he thinks, yeah, you know, none of us really thinks that the Andalites are coming, but I guess we've got hope. Even a false hope is better than nothing. Right. So, there's this like really, really, really dark vision of what is going on with Jake right now. That's like, he thinks the Andalites are coming. That means he thinks they're going to lose the war and they're probably going to lose it really soon. Mm. He doesn't have a brother anymore. That's because he thinks there will never be a time when he can infest Tom, oh, right? Yeah. Like Jake yeah. is in a really, really bad place. And that's a great motivation for him to start making really, really terrible choices. Ooh, yeah. Right. Similarly, Toby, Toby's thing, like, her wanting to earn her home with the blood of her people, like, that's really, really foolish. And there has to be some good reason for Toby to choose this. But what if Toby again thinks there's no way out and they're all going to die, right? So die valiantly fighting here that's so, get picked off. It, right, if they're, yeah. if like it was established that Hork, free hork in the hills have suddenly been getting picked off and there is no safe place for the hork and all they can do is this like, reckless last stand they don't want to get retaken right they might as well go out in a blaze of glory and like prove a point rather than be captured this like free or die thing that they've talked about before so like i feel like there is a version of this book where jake and toby see eye to eye and they're like yeah we've lost the war and then they're fighting about how to deal with it and like it's basically this like i I mean it's almost like another um because you'd have to have them win the battle in the same way right so like Obviously, it would be absurd if the beaver dam thing was the thing that got them out of this scenario, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, there's a version of the book that, like, 
the fact that they are losing means that, so like there are no good choices. So then who cares about protecting the campers lives? Who cares about protecting the free hork Valley? Who cares about all this secret. stuff? They're starting yeah. to fall apart and they can't see any way out. And then like something about this battle gives them a reason to keep Aww. fighting, right? Like that, yeah. that would be, that would be, that would be a great. great thing. I'd love to explore that side of Jake and Toby, but like, if you don't give them something that heavy emotionally, there's no reason for them to be making such silly choices. Okay. And my last piece of evidence is there's this real, real weird statement that Isaiah Fitzhenry talks about, where it's like what it must be like for slaves to live life under the threat of whipping. And Isaiah compares this to his own sense of like, what is it like to fight this battle knowing everything will be lost? So in the text exists this idea of like, we know we're going to lose, so we must fight anyway. But they don't really do anything with it. Yeah, they sort of give, they like outsource the darkness of this to like the Civil War narrative where like there's no real reason that this character had to die in the Civil War narrative. Um, it like, it could have been Jake's great, great, whatever grandfather. And instead it was his great, great uncle because he needed to have like, he needed to die and not leave progeny. And I wonder if it was because they wanted to grasp after this like darker theme and then it just kind of got cut out of the book or well, it never really got put in. That's in the just the same thing because Jake, Jake has been fighting for living with his mom and dad and brother and going back to normal. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like him calling Tom trash at the beginning is like kind of him rejecting that idea. And yeah. like Fitzhenry has the same thing where he's like, Oh, I can go home and be with my mother and sister in death. Right? Like <laughs> it's a very dark, if the book wasn't so, so stupid and poorly written and poorly thought yeah. through, it would be, it could be a heavy hitter. Mm -hmm. um, maybe just skip the entire Civil War thing, though. I don't think. <laughs> my, my version of a fix-it fic would perhaps remove the entire Civil War thing. Yes. There's no, it doesn't add anything. There's, yes, there's no reason just take to have it, it there. Yeah. It really just detracts. But yeah, it's okay. I'm sure it's going to get much better in the next book. Right, Ted? Right? Ted's not saying anything. This this is a this is an ominous omen in the good sense I'm sure, only bodes well. Do you want to know, Gray? <laughs> I'm very worried. Yes, tell me. Uh, the next one I'm really worried about. I think it'll become clear during the course of your prediction without further input from me. Cool. Yeah, should we look at the should cover of the return? Have you vetted the inside cover, Ted? Oh yeah, it's fair game. Okay, all right. Hey, you guys, what the. F Right? I actually, okay, so I remember oh. a big thing that happens in this. Like, I know a big thing that happens in this, but I have no idea what's going on with this cover. Have you looked at the details yet, Gray? Because you're about to get a lot more upset. The inside image or? No, the title, the cut text. Oh. <laughs> yes, I have a few things. <laughs> Please go on. One, what the hell is happening on this cover? Is she turning into like a Buffy style vampire? Because that's what's oh. happening to yeah, her face. This is what I was referencing when I said that Marco's joke about Rachel becoming Terminator came true. So this isn't she, quite Terminator. Is she morphing a cyborg? She has Wolverine claws. It is Wolverine. Claws. Yeah, yeah. Is she morphing Wolverine? Um, would you like to know how the book refers to this, or at least the fandom refers to what she morphs on the cover? This is Super Rachel. It Super isn't. Rachel. No. This is Rachel morphing Super Rachel. I don't know how that is a thing. Me, I'm, I'm very confused. So she's got Wolverine claws coming out of all her fingers. She also gets a six pack. 
which is, Mm -hmm. like, hardcore. And then is, like, I don't know, hunching and looking mean somehow. It's just very bad. Yeah. Yikes. And she's, like, in the sky for some reason. It's unclear. Oh, I think that's just their weird background. But maybe maybe she is in the sky. I don't know. The inside cover is a, it's that as a shadow and also the shadow of uh, Andalite, who is maybe trying to, like, pacify her. And the cut text says the sixth Animorph is back and he's not happy. So does David come back? And if so, how? And if so, why? What's the title of this book, Gray? It's called The Return. So I guess David's back. Is that what I'm learning from this cover? I would never tell you what happens in Animorph's (laughs) book before you read it. No, okay, very discreet. Things. One, there are six Animorphs, so he was actually the seventh Animorph. F- you guys for forgetting Axe again. Wait, do they mean this that Axe is back? This book makes that mistake. I won't say anymore. Never mind. Um, so that <laughs> upsets me. But they mean that. I think the I think that's how they talked about David as the sixth Animorph. Okay, my guess is that David's back because sixth Animorph okay. is back. I don't but know great. why. Let me quote you from moments ago. But how? <laughs> <laughs> but how? And also why? And also uh-huh. what for? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. Did he get... Did the, David? I don't know. Yerks find morphing energy even because he was in morph before he... I don't know. And then they got him off the island. Is he still a rat? Maybe he's still a rat. And he's coming back to like, I don't know, get kicked or something. Why? What is... I don't know. <laughs> you guys... <laughs> We broke Gray's prediction <laughs> ability. How can he be back? They left him on an island to die as a rat. Somebody heard him being a sad rat on an island. He was trapped as a rat. How is he back? I don't know. The, the Elemist came. The, no, um, Cryak came back and was like, I'm going to make your lives difficult. Here, have David. He's got morphing energy. Enjoy. I guess. I don't know. Uh, what do you think the Elemist, like, why do you think the Elemist let him do that? Did the Elemist get something out of it? Uh, or is this actually part of the Elemist plan? Yeah, the Elemist gets to build a new um, valley for the Freecourt Brugier, because now they don't have Ooh. a house. Nice. Um, why Super Rachel? And how? <laughs> also how? Maybe that's what the Ele- the Elemist gets to give Rachel uh, superpowers. Oh, no. And she chooses Wolverine. So super healing and also adamantium, you know, bones and claws. That's Marco's so weird. She can so already jealous. morph. Why would she want super healing and adamantium claws? Like, you'd think she would choose, like, I don't know, the ability to suck yurks out of people's heads or something. That would be better. Maybe she can. Yeah. That would be cool. Maybe she has a suction the, mouth. What is it called? Vantax? Varthax? Oh, the, um, Vanarks. Vanarks. Yeah. 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 Maybe that's what it looks like. Maybe a Vanarx just looks it like looks Rachel. Like, with, with it looks like Rachel with Wolverine claws. They just I'm never just told us what it looked like. I just imagine back in the Visitor, <laughs> Visitor Three slowly transforms into an older-looking version of me with Wolverine claws. It's weird that she never mentioned that. Just, <laughs> she know, was very took it as red. I watched my mouth go to Chapman's ear and suck the holographic image of a yerk out of it. <laughs> it's very disturbing. She just expects to see herself everywhere. It's normal. Yeah. Um, but, okay, great. Thank you for the prediction. You're welcome. I have some good news because we are not reading this book yet. We are now reading The <gasps> Elemist Chronicles. That's right. Which I am sure you are very excited about. I am very excited about it. I don't remember we'll what my prediction so was, but I'm delighted that that's, I don't have to read this nonsense yet. 
<laughs> I think the Elmas Chronicles is great. I think that you may rant about it, though. What a change that will be. <laughs> I remember it very poorly. I may also rant about it. We'll see. We'll see. I hope I rant about it, too. Ranting is it's, great. This it's has been a fun so episode. Much, it's so much objectively better than 47 and, <laughs> I hate to say, 48. Oh. I mean, it would yeah. have to be better than 47. Yes. But, okay, after 48, I think it's only up. There's one more after 48 where I'm like, meh, but it, nothing nothing that I'm dreading. It's the same way I was dreading these two books. Great. Can't wait. Yeah, Super excited about that. Cool, awesome. cool, cool. All right. Yeah. Almost Chronicles next time. Woo. See you next week. Bye. Bye. If you want to find us, we are at anamorphology.com and at anamorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Animorphs ebooks on our website. Just a continuation of, hey, um, don't write this f***ing book. <laughs> can that be the title of this episode? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs>